You're listening to Joko Community Radio. Barefoot and a bottle of wine. You can stay with me tonight. You don't have to change when I'm around you. So go ahead and see what's on your mind, on your mind. You can get that from anyone else. You don't have to put nothing. You can just be yourself. Good evening. Thank you guys for joining me. This is No Judgment Here, and I am your host, Tish Ross. We're going to hop right in. In 1999 in the United States, there were 1,218 women and 424 men. They were killed uh, by their partners. In 2005, there were 1,181 females and 329 males. They were also killed by their intimate partners. According to the American Journal of Emergency Medicine, the COVID-19 pandemic has caused significant destruction worldwide as it has taken lives from families in the United States. In the wake of COVID-19, the domestic violence trend has risen greatly. Reports from the epicenter in China indicate that domestic violence has tripled during February of 2020 compared to last year. The data from police departments provides some earlier insight from the effects of COVID in, of COVID in terms of domestic violence. For instance, on March 16th of 2020 in Portland, Oregon, stay-at-home orders were in place, and just a couple of weeks later, just a couple of weeks later, the Portland Police Bureau reported a 22% increase in arrests related to domestic violence. In San Antonio, Texas, schools closed March 20th of 2020, and stay-at-home orders came March 24th, and the San Antonio Police Department subsequently noted an 18% increase in calls pertaining to family violence. One in three women and one in seven men will be victims of domestic violence in one way or another. Domestic violence usually occurs in a domestic space when one individual holds power over another. Domestic violence is a broad term, and it typically includes an intimate partner, intimate partner violence, which is also called IPV, where the violence usually occurs between a current or former intimate partner, which includes stalking, psychological, emotional, and mental abuse, and or physical and sexual violence. If you are in a domestic violence relationship and you need help, please call 1-800-799-7233. For the hearing impaired, the number is 1-800-787-3224. Or if you are unable to speak safely, you can text in all capital letters, love is to one 331 9474 We want you to know that you are not alone. Um, domestic violence has been around for a long time, and my guests today have experienced it firsthand. And they are here today to share their experiences with us. And I just want to reiterate that I do these shows not to exploit and I do not do these shows um, to bash others. That is not my intention at all. I want to help educate others and let people know that they are not alone. And I want my guests to feel empowered to use your voice. Some of these stories that you're going to hear this evening are very difficult to hear, and they're not for our little one's ears. So listener discretion is advised. My guests this evening are Faith Conway and Chris Keith.
who have both so graciously and bravely um, said yes to tell their stories, and I thank you both. Um, also joining us by phone is Rhonda Brunson. She is the founder of the Choose Courage Foundation at a national nonprofit organization, which actually two of my guests I just found out are on the board of. So I'm excited to talk to you guys about that. Um, so I want to go ahead and get started. I know we have a lot, a lot to talk about um, this evening. So I'm going to kind of start with you, Faith. Tell me about yourself. Um, you're married, single, dating, what you do for a living, all that good stuff. Sure, I will. Thank you also um, for the invite. I always am so grateful for a chance to tell my story. Absolutely. Um, so I am actually freshly back on the dating scene, which mm. is a scary place to be, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, dating a really sweet guy um, after a three-year break from dating. I have three girls. They are 15, 12, and 10. Um, one's in elementary school, one's in middle school, one's in high school, and today's the first day of school. So I know, exciting. <laughs> Very exciting day. Mm -hmm. uh, the busy's back and spring break is over. Mm -hmm. So um, for a living, I am a small business assistant. Okay. I do bookkeeping and office work. Um, I sell Pamper Chef on the side. I've, I always have a few things going on. So, But those are my main jobs. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. And so... Um, how did you, um, we're going to dive in, how did you, or um, I guess, how did you meet your abuser? So we met at Bible college and started dating there and dated three and a half years at the college before we got married two weeks after I graduated. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so we dated a long time, but, um, and that was part of the problem. We dated on campus kind of in a bubble. Mm -hmm. There was lots of rules and regulations at the college and you had to go to church and you had to wear this and you had to do that. Mm -hmm. But we were not allowed to date off campus. I rarely saw him not in that environment mm -hmm. unless we were on vacation together. Um, and so 95% of our time spent together was in that environment. And, mm -hmm. and I think that contributed to my not not um, having a chance. It would think in three and a half years, right? Yeah. Not not much of uh, red flags. Wow. Mm -hmm. Because that was my next question is what, you and, know, and while I you do were dating. Yeah, and I do have some, but I think uh, because yeah. of the environment itself, because it was a Christian environment. Yeah, and, and there was lots of rules and lots of structure, and you, if you didn't follow them, you had to leave. So he did, and I did, and... And it just looked very different than real life. Mm -hmm. And so what were some of those red flags that you can share with us that you noticed while you were, were dating? Um, sure. So I remember one time, and it was probably within a year, like pretty close to when we were going to get married. So we'd been dating a while. Mm -hmm. um, I surprised him and his mom bought me a ticket and was going to fly me up. He was going to fly up to his brother's wedding and I was going to surprise him and go with him. Mm -hmm. So we, I did, we did, we, we surprised him. We had a great time at the wedding. Um, we flew back and I remember landing and the, over the intercom, they said, um, you know, we're landing. Please remain buckled for your safety. I unbuckled my seatbelt. And he lost his mind. Like, he, he was so 
upset that I broke that rule. And I wasn't so much worried about that as the fact that he was so worried about what I was doing with my seatbelt after mm-hmm. we landed. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought, this is kind of bizarre and weird. And I thought, you know, he always got kind of stressed in um, oh. certain situations. Mm-hmm. And that's that was one of them, traveling, you know, traveling or anytime you might have anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking... I don't know if this is normal, you know? Right. Why is he so concerned about me? Why is he yelling at me? Because I unbuckled my seatbelt. I'm not a child. I'm not two. Mm-hmm. You know, so that was the first, that wasn't the first red flag, but that was the first one that was like, made it obvious between me and him that like me seeing him as something like that. Mm-hmm. Sounds almost a little bit, uh, a little bit controlling a little bit. Um, yes. Okay. And he was kind of that way a little bit looking back over, what I wore, what I ate, uh, mm-hmm. where we went. Mm-hmm. But to me, it was more like, you know, him leading the relationship. If I, I didn't really care, so I would just defer to whatever he preferred. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But looking back, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. looking back, it's definitely, it was not what I would prefer if I would choose it without his input. Um, he had a lot of, he had a lot of anger issues in his past that he told me about when we started dating. Um, some some family issues, some institutional stuff, and some tough stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it was when he was a teenager, and he um, had come to Christ after that, and was coming. He had not gone to a Christian school or anything. Had gone to a public school, but had ridden the bus ministry, gone to church, gotten saved, and now was going to Bible college. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, I don't, you know, it's not my job to evangelize him while I'm dating, but I can give him some grace. He's growing, he's learning, you know, right, but he right. was getting in fights at the college. He was, especially like if it was a competition, if it was a sporting event, um, he would get in trouble with the supervisors for being, you know, belligerent or domineering or something. So things like that definitely mm-hmm. happened. And I, I think I gave too much grace just knowing knowing his past and knowing that I thought he was working through that, you know, and growing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, um, as you guys started to date, was he, your abuse that you experienced with him, was it both um, physical and mental or? When we were dating, mm-hmm. none, not, nothing till I got married, none. And then when you got married, when did it, when did it start? Was it physical and, and mental? Um, as far as the physical he slapped me in the face one time within six months of our first, uh, within six months of our marriage. And I looked at him. I grew up in an abusive home. Mm-hmm. I grew up with an abusive father. Um, he drowned when I was 13. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of ended it for us. And then it was just my mom raising us five teenagers. So I looked at him and I, um, you know, I said, I'm not doing this. I, this is not what I signed up for. You are not doing this to me. You will never do that again. You will never see me again. And I was serious. Mm -hmm. And I think he knew that. And he didn't lay another hand on me until probably probably for 11 years. But But every day, every day, it was, it was, um, it was undermining. It was just making me feel small. It was... It was criticizing. It was nothing I could ever do could, was ever good enough. I couldn't. I couldn't grocery shop. I couldn't cook. I didn't do you know anything right with the kids, and I couldn't keep house. And you know everything was. It's very critical. It sounds. Yeah, and the 
reactions did not match the instance, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So it's the wrong vanilla ice cream. We're going to explode over it, you know? Like, yeah. it, didn't, it didn't match. Mm -hmm. the, it didn't warrant that response. Um, and then that was every day. That was, that was constant and always, and just a constant beating down of myself and my, in my brain. And, um, and then the last year of our marriage, the year that I left, Something happened. Something triggered him. I don't know what. I still don't know to this day. But he started getting physical. He started getting physical with me. He started getting physical with the kids. Um, and it was escalating quickly. Mm -hmm. um, I would say within three months' time, the majority of the physical stuff happened. And um, I just... Knew. I just knew I had to do something. Now, when you say physical with the kids, um, and, and again, this is very raw if you're listening, um, what do you mean? I mean, was he beating the children? Um, was he also um, mentally abusing them as well? He, yes, uh, especially one of my children. He would constantly, and I think it's the one that had the, mo the closest personality to him, mm. he constantly put her down, called her names, called her called her stupid, um, pushed, shoved, broke doors, punched walls, anything to incite fear, mm -hmm. um, slapped, grabbed, just, it was just, I don't know how else to describe it, it was just escalating, mm -hmm. and I could tell there was no control, and, and in those moments, it was out of control, but the next day, he would act like nothing happened, everything was fine, and if I talked to him about it those, during those times, mm -hmm. Uh, it, he he couldn't believe in his himself that he did it, but he would never admit it. He was never wrong. It was always you. So I remember one day um, we were in the bedroom and he punched me really hard in the arm for no reason. Like, I don't even know why. The bruise lasted, I think, three weeks. I had to cover it at work. And I remember a couple days later, I said, I, I, I just couldn't even talk to him for those two days. Like, who, who are you? I don't even know who you are. Mm -hmm. And I remember asking him, uh, what, what happened? Why did you do that? You know, just for some, you were, I was like grasping for some kind of connection, mm -hmm. you know? And he said, well, did you learn a lesson? And I said, Let, like, I can't have a conversation with somebody like that, right? That's, right. Not, that's not logical. So that was the beginning of the end for me that period, that three month period. Mm. So I'm gonna ask you something. Sure. Um, and, I, and I ask you this, and I also wanna ask uh, when we get to Chris the same question. Um, so I am to a victim of uh, child abuse, um, physical, mental. Um, my father was a raging alcoholic. And I, I don't say this to bash my dad because I love yes. him. I love him and, yes. and he's passed and he's in heaven and um, I forgive him. Um, but because I never asked my mom this, I'm going to ask you this. Oh, okay. Um, in the midst of the abuse, um, I think that because it's very similar. So, so when we were beaten, um, then the next day, obviously my father, he didn't, wouldn't say anything or talk about it either. Nobody would talk about it. Nobody would say, why did you do that? You know, and, and, um, and my mother defended us the best that she could. But, and so my question to you, when it, 
when your children were being abused, how long did you stay? Why did you stay as long as you did with, with your... And it's a hard question. And I, I don't even know if, that, if my mother would have had an answer because I always wondered, well, why are you... In my mind as a kid, I'm thinking, why do we have to stay? Why are we putting up with this? Why is my mother putting up with this, you know? Yeah. Um, that's kind of a question that I didn't prepare or ask you, but I, I'm, I'm well, it's just okay. curious, I, think, I guess. I think you partially did. And if I don't answer it completely, let me know. Okay. But I think it's complex. Um, so as a child, I never thought that. I never thought, why do we leave? We, we, we would never leave. It's just the situation we were in, we couldn't leave. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad, my mom actually did leave my dad, uh, shortly within a year of the t- before he passed away um and we were in a visitation phase sort of when he passed away um but i think yeah i didn't i never asked that question and and i don't know why i didn't uh, we just thought it was normal mm. we we thought it was a normal part of growing up and mm-hmm. i i don't want to speak for my siblings that's how i felt sure mm-hmm. um as far as me when I was an adult, I knew better, of course, by the time I was an adult, thank God. Um, but why do you stay? It's so complicated. So there's moral, obliga- moral obligation was the strongest one for me mm-hmm. because I would have quit long before I did. Um, you know, we were raised to never, you never get a divorce. You, mm-hmm, you forgive, mm-hmm. you love, you, you know, God love. And I learned during that last year that God loves people more than institutions Mm -hmm. and people are everything to him. And honestly, the only reason I left is for my kids. And I tell women that all the time. I'm so blessed to be able to help women all the time in my inbox. Um, And I tell them, if you can't leave for yourself, leave for your kids. Mm -hmm. Because the whole, you you know, you're you're good enough, you're enough, you're worth it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't resonate when you're in that you know you think it's your duty to love to stay to provide a dad for your kids you know how are you going to weigh what they're going to lose as to what compared with what they're losing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. by leaving so and, and i don't want women to feel and nor you uh, I, I be no disrespect by asking that question because i don't women i don't want you or women to feel like you know well um why ask that question i don't i don't feel like women are weak at all for staying I'm that's not um why I asked the question my curiosity is um knowledge you know yes why uh, and I know a lot of women that have stayed and I know a lot of women that have tried to escape some have st- are still in the relationship some have successfully escaped yes um but to get in that mindset of what is it I mean I kind of, it may be no comparison, but in terms of, uh, I shared on my podcast that when you have someone who, uh, someone who might be anorexic, right? Mm -hmm. And their body, their mind, their body, their soul is so conditioned um, to not eating. I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to eat. And then their body rejects it and their mind rejects food. That when somebody says um, that is ignorant to what it feels like to be anorexic, if someone says, you know, the the anorexic is trying to heal and get better, and then you have someone say, well, just here's a hamburger, just eat it. 
-hmm. you know, they can't. Yes. Like they can't. Yes. And so I'm, and like I said, that's not a very good analogy, but in terms of being in a place where your emotions, your mental, uh, your everything has already been um, pounded down, you've been pounded down and you feel a certain way. I mean, I think it seems almost more frightening to leave than well, it yes. is to stay. Yes, you you learn to, it, that is still your your safe place, mm-hmm. even though it's not safe. Mm-hmm. Um, my whole life was there on that campus. My kids went to preschool there. My job was there. My church was there. All my friends were there. All our sports teams were there. It was it was one place. Mm-hmm. And I was fairly certain that if I left, I would lose my job. My kids would lose their school. I mean, I completely had to start over. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's definitely a factor. Um, and then I think it's so dangerous to leave mm-hmm. when you when you leave they lose control right abuse is all about power and control mm-hmm. they lose control and they get desperate and it it a woman is 70 times 70 times more likely to be killed by an intimate partner when they leave than their entire uh relationship wow 70 times more likely it is extremely dangerous to leave that's why all these you know, safe havens and all them have so many layers of, um, you know, security and protection mm-hmm. and all that. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and I wasn't sure about custody. I didn't know how that was going to work. Sure. You know, yeah. I'm going to take him away and make him mad and then I got to take him back to him. And there's just so many unknowns. Yeah, so many factors. Um, so, uh, Chris, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, what you do for a living, married, single, have kiddos? Yes. Um, first of all, thanks for having me. Oh, gosh. And um, I am married, been married since I was a teenager um, to a beautiful wife. We have three kids, um, a junior and then a third grader and a first grader. So we, we started virtual school last week, and it's just a mess. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully if everything stays the same, we'll go back to normal school next week. Mm. So that's what we're dealing with right now. But Gotcha. Um, so tell me a little bit, and, I, and I, I thank you so much, Chris, for coming on. And, mm-hmm. and um, not, I don't want to say more so than, than women or more so than faith or, or anything like that, but for whatever reason, um, it is very hard for me to get um, men to come on to the show. Um, I, I hate that somebody somewhere along the way i don't know where but it's it still it trickles down even to this century generations that it is a sign of weakness to talk about your feelings your emotions i hate that because i'm so not about that um it's a sign of weakness for a man to cry um and none of that is true and so i i, I thank you even i don't want to say even more but i thank you for coming on be my first male guest because i my hope and my prayer is that it will open the door for more men to come on and share because other men just like women need women men need men and other men need to know that it is okay i mean you know it is okay to come and use your voice and to speak out and while they are hard and difficult um subjects and 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 topics um i am just very grateful for you coming on i really am and, and sharing your story so um so tell me a little bit about uh the domestic violence or the um 
relationship with that that you had in in your lifetime? Okay, um, mine was surviving from a child's perspective, and so growing up, um, my dad was just very—he um, was an alcoholic. He did—he um, dabbled with drugs with his friends. With uh, he was a race car driver, and so they would hang out on the weekends and, and do some drugs. And but for the most part, it was mostly alcohol. He was just very. Um, like Faith was saying, like, well, most of the time the attitude seemed to be, okay, I'm, I'm a great guy, but then there was just times where he just lost his temper. And so me and my brother, who was three years older than me, um, just us viewing our first ever time to see a relationship, that's kind of what we grew normal. Mm. Uh, that's what we thought a normal relationship was. There was just yelling and hitting and just... Um, tearing somebody down Mm -hmm. and um, so that was my first um, glimpse of what a marriage was and the saddest part is I thought that's what a marriage should be Mm. and so that's where and I don't know if you wanted me to just to go into what happened or if you want me to okay so um, my dad was very just had anger issues and so the time of this incident I was five my brother was eight um, there were several times that, you know, the physical abuse was mainly towards my mom. He was very obsessed with my mom. Um, every now and then it would be a, a, on us. And my brother was a little, um, I don't even know the right, right words, but he, he would see what was going on being a little older than me. And he would sometimes get in the way or distract distract what's going on um but for the most part he was my dad was just so obsessed with my mom that it was all directed towards her um several times he he beat her so badly that we had to um go stay at a battered women's shelter um me and my brother and my mom until things calmed down mm-hmm. and then as a lot of women do in those cases she just kept taking him back mm-hmm. she she even told my aunt actually a week before this happened that I'm getting ready to talk about um he would never hurt the kids so we're going to give it another try um and so he never did uh physically abuse you and your brother um uh, besides like pushing into the wall i mean the hardcore things he would he he saved for my mom i don't know if that's the right words to say but yeah, the the majority of that was directed towards my mother. So, um, and then that kept going on. Like I said, we thought it was normal. The yelling was normal. And I want to hear um, exactly what what happened to your mom as soon as we come back. Okay, so stay tuned. No judgment. We'll be back in minutes. If you are trying to quit drinking or doing too many drugs, listen to me. You don't know me and we'll never meet. I had a problem like you once. I drank and used to party a little too much till it got out of control and almost ruined my life. 
I realized I needed help to fix my problem before it totally destroyed me. If you've tried to fix your drinking and drug problem and you know you can't do it alone, you need to call the National Treatment Advisors. They'll immerse you into a 30-day program to replace your old habits with new habits and totally change your life. And if you have PPO, private health insurance, the entire program may be covered. Fix your problem right now before it gets any worse. Get clean. Call now and learn more. 877-247-1581-877-247-1581-877-247-1581. Los adolescentes que dicen tener una buena relación con sus padres son cuatro veces menos propensos a consumir drogas. ¿Te sientes desconectado? Comunícate con un Centro Regional de Recursos de Prevención cercano para fortalecer tus lazos familiares. Empieza una nueva tradición familiar. Visita Drug Free Texas para más información. Here at Variety's Gourmet Popcorn and Sweets, we carry a variety of products, ranging from our famous gourmet popcorn to premium virgin olive oils and vinegars. We offer tins and baskets for every occasion, such as birthdays, anniversaries, holidays, and corporate gifts. We also ship to any location, even internationally. Come visit us at 251 Southwest Wilshire Boulevard, Burleson, Texas. Call us at 817-426-2100 or visit our website at www.moretti'sgourmet.com. The voice of Johnson County, Joko Community Radio. Guys, if you want to take Joko Community Radio on the go with you, simply download the TuneIn Radio app, hit the X in the top right, and search for us. It is free. Who doesn't love free internet radio? Um, you do not need a paid account. Um, or simply, you can go to jokocommunityradio.com and hit on air here button we are live on spreaker.com too so thank you guys for joining us um this episode is brought to you by next level claims making your insurance work for you um and we're back and i I just want again to to reiterate um how much i appreciate you guys coming um and telling your story um and for those of you that are listening um we are going to be coming back on july the 14th um, because next monday no judgment here i'm so sorry i was just kidding september 14th it's good to have guests that know what the dates are what month we're in um because no judgment here will not be here next Monday. We are going to be off for Labor Day. But on September 14th, we will have um, uh, both Faith and Chris back on with us. So, Chris, go ahead and, and, and tell us um, tell us your story, what happened to your, your family. Sure. Well, um, the violence kept getting worse. And like I was saying several times, we went to live at a, a shelter until things calmed down. But my mom kept taking him back. At the time of this incident, I was five years old and my brother was eight years old um my mom had currently kicked my dad out they were separated um talking about getting a divorce but um in reality who knows if that was going to happen um but he wasn't living with us at the time and this was a sunday evening 
And my dad had called and, and asked my mom if he'd come over and they could talk through some things and just kind of begged and pleaded. And she eventually said, okay. He came over. On a, that was that evening. He was obviously under the influence of something. Mm-hmm. And um, it's like almost immediately just normal. They just started fighting. And my brother and I, um, we were used to the fighting, but then eventually it kind of got to a point where... Um, it's hard to take, and so we'd always disappear into the other room. Um, but eventually, you know, they told us to go to go to sleep. Again, it was kind of normal, so it wasn't hard to fall asleep with yelling in the background, just because that was that was our life. Yeah. And so we fell asleep. My parents kept arguing into the night, and it apparently got really heated, and the fight ended up um, back into the bedroom, their bedroom, and also. My brother and I had separate rooms, but for some reason, I mean, I think I know the reason, but we always slept in the same room. Mm-hmm. Either I slept in a pallet in his his room or he'd sleep on the floor in my room. So that night we were in the same room um, when we went to sleep. They were fighting in the bedroom, and it got super heated. I don't know the exact exchange, you know, whether she kept telling him no for the last time. Mm-hmm. Something just um, triggered in him just, just the anger and um So he reached up and started started to choke my mom until she collapsed. And then he grabbed a pillow and then uh, suffocated her at the foot of the bed. And then he went to his closet, grabbed his thirty eight, and came into the room where me and my brother were. He stuck the gun to the back of my brother's head and pulled the trigger. He then turned to where I was sleeping and stuck the gun to the back of my head right behind my left ear and pulled the trigger. He then walked into the living room, and I don't know, and I've thought about this many times, um, you know, was it was it instantly, or did he run around screaming, banging the walls? I don't, because of what he just did, I don't know. Um, but he eventually went into the living room, sat in his chair, put the gun to his head, and, and, and committed suicide. Um, Chris, I am so sorry. I, I, um... There are no words. I mean, there's not anything that I can say. Um, I, I can't even imagine um, witnessing, um, going through, uh, seeing what you saw, um, your life as well, being threatened, um, meant to be taken, and... Um, Witnessing the loss of your your brother and uh, your mom, and I'm 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 very very sorry. I'm sorry for your loss. Um, if you need a break, just let me know. No. Um. So everyone in your family, um, your brother, your mother, and uh, your father, uh, they are all deceased. Mm-hmm. So I was the only survivor. Um, Actually, I was pronounced dead as well the next day when they found us. Uh, one officer reported that rigor mortis already started setting in on my body. And um, I don't know why I'm getting emotional. But, um, Please. So actually, the, the news crews, the paramedics all started leaving because it was just another statistic, right? And uh, everybody's pronounced dead. And by the grace of God, as one of the paramedics was leaving, he, saw, he looked down the hallway and saw my hand move. 
And uh, the footage is on YouTube, and it's really surreal to see it. But the guy comes out the door, hey, uh, we have one alive in here. So then it automatically turns into just a scene of tragedy to trying to save a little boy's life. Yes. And then all of a sudden, they didn't bring a stretcher in and, and gently put me on it. It shows the lady running down the driveway, carrying me, and you can see my head flopping. It's just, it's insane to see, you know, the curly hair, blood matted. I have a blanket wrapped around me and uh, put me on the stretcher, flew me to the hospital, and I think it was about an eight-hour surgery. They told my grandpa, said, um, he said, if we don't do the surgery soon, he's going to die. But um, just so you know, during the surgery, there's a pretty good chance he might die. Because my dad didn't miss. He, he stuck the gun right behind my left ear, shot, shot through, and it destroyed my cerebellum, which is the back part of the brain. Um, if you see my x-ray, the cerebellum is pretty much gone. Um, they couldn't get out all the bullet fragments, so there's actually little white dots everywhere. And then I have a scar where it came out on the right side of my head. So he didn't miss. Um, so they couldn't explain why I was still alive. Um, so my grandpa said, the surg- him and the surgeon said a prayer, and he said, please, you know, save this young man. Uh, he went in, did the surgery. They said, I don't know if he's going to have a speech impediment or any kind of physical uh, disability or whatever, but, I mean, we don't even know why he's still alive. And so I remember waking up in a vegetative state. I couldn't move. I couldn't talk. And here I am, this little five-year-old boy, you know, just bandages I could see him at the top of my forehead and it's probably probably the scariest moment of my life um, because I, I saw my grandparents sitting to the right of me mm. the doorway was diagonal to the right and people from the neighborhood and the church that my grandparents took us to were coming in you know bringing things cards and thing and um, that didn't matter to me right I was staring through these people wondering you know where my mom was where my brother was because um, they didn't I had, I mean, I went to sleep and I woke up in a hospital. Um, I may have seen some things, but uh, thank God, I don't remember those yes. things. Um, and then that starts the next journey to where I'm alone, and it's all about hope and perseverance that I didn't find out till I was older. Um, but now that I'm older, thinking about the things that my mom went through and the things maybe she laid in bed, thinking about at night. Um, you know, because when I and then eventually when my grandparents got a guardianship of me, the state told them, hey, don't tell him what happened. He's too young. So actually, for like seven years, I thought I was in a car accident and I was the only one that survived. I was going to ask you. So um, how did and it's kind of going back a little bit more? Um, how did the police who called the police? So that was the another part of the story is my aunt, my mom, and a couple other people in my family all worked at an insurance company. And everybody kind of knew the tension in my family and just kind of what my dad was like. And so when my mom didn't show up for work on Monday morning, my aunt was very worried. And so that's when she asked her boss if she could go home. Um, she tried to call the police and say, hey, can we come with me? I'm kind of scared. And they basically said, no. I mean, if you don't have anything to report, we're not coming out. Um, so she went out by herself, knocked on the door, obviously no answer, went around the back. We had a sliding glass door, and the curtain was open. Mm-hmm. And that's when she saw my dad. She just, you know, flipped out, went next door and called the police. And then that's when the paramedics and news crews all came. Was she not allowed to, do you know, I, I don't know if you know, but was she not allowed to go inside, I guess, because of the, the scene? And, and the reason I ask that is because here you are, you know, or there you were. And for the police or the the paramedics to say that 
you know, we have one that's alive. Was was? Do you know if she was not allowed to go in? I'm I'm guessing probably. Yeah, not. I wouldn't think so. I know, I I know from seeing some of the news footage, I could see tons of my extended family just running around, just freaking out. But yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't think anybody yeah. would be allowed inside. But um. Mm-hmm. So did the incident happen on Sunday night? Yes, it was okay. a Sunday night. Okay. And so when you you wake up in the hospital, you have no recollection of of anything, Mm-mm. anything that happened or anything. No. Um, and your grandfather was there. Um, it, it is a miracle. It, it is a miracle that you are are here, that you're alive, that there are no, um, from what I can see and from what it sounds like, there aren't any... Um, yeah, any. You, I mean, you're you're able to walk, you're able mm-hmm. to talk, and and um, uh, any b- physical effects um, from that from that gunshot. I mean, that is you're a walking, talking miracle, and I thank God that you're here to share your story um, of of your family. Um, and I'm uh, before I before I introduce uh, Rhonda. Um, so you said that you woke up and you thought that you had been in an automobile accident, and they didn't tell you what, or your family, your grandparents didn't tell you exactly what happened until, how, how old were you? I was about 12. 12. Mm-hmm. So um, as kids are smart, I started figuring things out, little pieces, but mm-hmm. didn't know the whole thing by the, I was 12. I was getting in trouble in school, acting out. Uh, I felt like I was in the movie Goodwill Hunting because I went to a different counselor every year. They mm-hmm. couldn't figure out what to do, so I was a new counselor this year. Mm-hmm. But then at 12 years old, they took me to a, a guy that went to our church and said, hey, we're going to see Mr. Tyner. And I knew something was going on because they both went with, my grandparents both went with me to the appointment. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, this isn't just about school. And uh, we got up there and they said, hey, we may have waited too long. We should, maybe we should have waited longer, but we figured it's time to tell you about your life. And then they laid everything out. You just the, this newspaper article, the video started giving me details about my my dad and things. He was so obsessed with my mom. They found a picture at the scene. It was a family picture, so all four of us. My dad had taken a black marker and crossed out my face, crossed out my brother's face, and circled. My, he was like just so obsessed with my mom. Like I I don't understand it, but. Um, so that's what kind of what kind of person he was. He hit it very well, I think, to a lot of people. And I think that's what a lot of those people are good at. Yes. Um, is hiding it. And so that has actually helped me a lot in my life and with my family. Because, you know, when I was younger, people are like, aren't you afraid you're going to end up like your dad? And things like that, that just constantly, constantly think about. And so when I'm dealing with issues with my family, am I perfect? No. But right. I think about that and, like, that I never want to fully lose my temper or, or, or do something that, um, that I could never take back. Um, but anyway, as a 12 year old, what, what does a 12 year old think as you're, so you're living your life and, and, um, you're acting out and seeing counselors and things like that. And I don't, I don't know if you remember the exact day that they, they talked to you about that, but as a 12-year-old, how does, how does a child that age receive, understand? Mm-hmm. How do you... I think the hard part was it was almost like reliving it because all those emotions just started processing again, the mm-hmm. fear, the abandonment, the hatred, being mad at my grandparents for waiting so long to tell me about my life, being mad at my mom for not being able to leave the situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then just hating my dad. Um, and then as 
kids, you know, in those situations, we always blame ourselves too. So I thought, you know, what, what could I have done different? You know, things, just mm. thoughts that always go through kids' heads when they're, when things like that happen. And it was like, and I turned into a, more of a recluse for at least a couple of years. And then that's when really like the, not rebirth, but just the, the next part of my life happened where, where, where God just put all these mentors in my life. Obviously no dad. I didn't trust people. I had in, severe insecurity issues. I still don't trust people. I mean, my, my own dad tried to kill me. Like who, do, who, who am I supposed to trust? Right. Um, my grandparents started putting me in church. Um, I met the youth minister and his wife there. They started just, just mentoring me and then a few other people. Um, and my grandpa as well. And that's where the next chapter of my life started. Well, I want to, when we um, come back on September the 14th, um, I I want us to pick up with both you and Faith where we left off. Because, Chris, um, even in my own um, life, my own raising of my own children, um, my kiddos were abandoned. And growing up without a father, um, being a mother of of kiddos that... um, for whatever reason, again, I'm not bashing, but for whatever reason, maybe parents, whether it's a father or mother, feel like they they don't know how to be a parent after being out of somebody's life for so long. But I want to know the effects of growing up um, without a father because that actually will help me to maybe even understand my where my son might be be thinking. Um, so I want to go ahead and first of all, thank you both for sharing. And I still have tons of questions for, for both of you when we come back on September 15th. But I want to introduce my next guest. Um, her name is Rhonda Brunson. And Rhonda, you are the founder. Rhonda, are you there? Can you hear me? I am. Okay, yes. perfect. Hi. Thank you for joining us. You are the founder of the Choose Courage Foundation, which is a national nonprofit organization. Um it is created to, or, or was created to, um, help break the the shame, the stigma, and the silence of domestic abuse. And so, Rhonda, tell us how the Choose Courage Foundation came to be and why. You know, it's the first question I'm always asked is if I'm a survivor, and I'm not. And I think that's what makes us a bit unique at the Choose Courage Foundation is it's those of us that are survivors and non-survivors coming together to really work on this issue and break that shame associated with domestic violence. Uh, how it started was I it was a photography project. Mm. I was volunteering at Safe Haven of Tarrant County, which is a local resource for us here. Um, it's an underground shelter and just, you know, doing all the things, helping with laundry, helping, you know, serve dinner, whatever was needed. Mm-hmm. And I would see these women week after week, month after month, and I just kept thinking they don't know. They have no idea how inspirational this is. They're doing this really hard thing. Mm. They're making these really hard choices, and there's so much courage in that. Mm. And so being a photographer, running a photography business, I decided, well, I'm going to show them. So I decided to do a personal photography project where I would photograph survivors of domestic violence, but in a beautiful way, Mm. to showcase their courage, to show them their beauty that I just didn't think that they could see like we could see in these just amazing choices and amazing things of courage that they were doing. So I put out a model call and that 
first night, I had over 10 people write me that wanted that were survivors of domestic violence and wanted to be a part of the project. And we ended up with 12, and we called those our originals. Mm-hmm. And Faith is one of the originals. Yes, um, and, and I'm happy Chris to say my sister actually, and um, my sister and my my niece are also um, yes. two of the originals. Go ahead. Yes, and they were the very first photo shoot. The very first one. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just, and then it's just, we, we did that, you know, that very first fundraiser for the Safe Haven of Tarrant County. Chris was our speaker there. It was mm-hmm. very powerful. Mm-hmm. And we knew that there was so much power in these images that we had to do something with it. There was something that we could do with this to actually make a difference with this issue. And now we're in our fifth year. We photographed hundreds of men and women and told their story and their choices of courage. Um, And we just, we love celebrating all survivors of domestic violence as a way to grow awareness and then inspire victims to seek help, Mm -hmm. that they see it can be done. They see that it has been done and someone that may be just like them. Absolutely. And I have to say that... um you have such a gift um, in photography, Thank and you. Um, you have combined it with yes, the beauty of um, these survivors, and you capture it, and you can see. I, I mean, I can say I know just because of, because my sister and because my niece were a part of the uh, original um, shoot that I don't think. Oh my goodness, Chris! I think I might get a little choked up. Um, <laughs> I don't think that I have seen my family so just strong and beautiful um, because of what they endured and went through. I mean, things that I didn't even know about until they said yes to doing um, the photo shoot. And so a lot of that stuff came out, and and I believe that because of your, um, the way that you handled the shoot I know with my with my sister my niece that a lot of um the details started to come out and actually with people speaking about their journey um the hard part the abuse um it actually helped them there's a bit of healing when you when you can talk about it and I want to thank you for capturing just all of the survivors for all these years now and um sharing how beautifully strong they are um their their strength is is just it's it's divine um so tell us how we as a community we as um a a state how can we uh support the choose courage foundation what can we do to help you know the most important thing that we feel we do is that awareness And so following the Choose Courage Foundation, sharing our survivors, you know, commenting, liking, adding your support to them, we just, we see the healing through that of all of our survivors across the whole world that follow us. Mm. But as they see, you know, they see that support, we know that they also feel that support. So just following us on social media and giving those loves, giving those likes, giving that encouragement is so so essential to every part of what we're doing and so you have you are on facebook as choose courage foundation um yep are you also on instagram what other social media platforms are you on 
uh, as well, and then Twitter as well as Pinterest. And do you have a website that people can go to? Is there a way that, um, I mean, that we can uh, help financially or, or anything like that? Absolutely. How can we yes, do that? Yes, it's choosecourage.org. And, of course, you know, we have the donate button right front and center um, that, you know, every little bit helps. Because if we can boost those social media posts to reach 1,000, to reach 50,000, to reach 100,000, we know with the one in four statistic of women, one in seven statistic of men, that we're reaching people that need to see this message of hope. Absolutely. And where does the donation, what is the contribution, where does that money go to? It goes to, yeah, we are 100% volunteer, so all of the money goes towards the mission of breaking the shame, stigma, and silence, helping with the photo shoots, really boosting those to reach the hundreds of thousands to grow that awareness. That is awesome. And um, Rhonda, you haven't shot just here in, in Texas. Have you taken this to other parts of the, the United States? We have. We've done, we did a campaign in Omaha, Nebraska. We've done a campaign in Philadelphia. We've done a couple campaigns in LA, um, which is always super exciting as we move about the country and we gain those followers. Um, this year, of course, we've been put a little bit kibosh on that. So mm. we're trying to figure out how to um, safely start traveling again and bringing survivors from all across the country in on this vision. Mm. And so uh, before we go, I, I want to ask um, you to share a little bit about um, your thoughts on, on the strength of, um, of both Faith and, and Chris. You know, and it's, it's Faith and Chris who have been a part of this since the beginning, that that's my inspiration and my motivation. And just their sharing their strength, mm. I see it. I see it affect the person who's not quite there yet, the person who's on that cusp and ready to leave. Mm -hmm. And it's, it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage to say this happened to me mm -hmm. and it's okay that I'm, I'm stronger for it. Absolutely. And that they allowed themselves to be celebrated, I think in itself takes a lot of courage. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, it is, um, it is I mean, how blessed are you, the beauty that you get to see? Uh, I mean, I, I look at, at Faith and Chris even now, and as Chris was telling the story, woo, I had to dig deep because... Um, beauty just it shines through in their in their stories the strength you know um with them sharing and i i pray i pray that whoever's listening who is on that cusp um will gain some strength from both both chris and and faith and hearing their story i know that i have um and just yeah. and one more thing um you also have a teen project is that is that correct can you tell we me a little bit do. about that Yes, we do. We have a group of teen ambassadors who take over our social media in February. Because when we did the research and we talked to the teens and we said, how can we help you? How can we help you have better relationships, know the red flags, help your friends, help each other? And they all said, we're on social media. Reach us there. So it's by teens. It's for teens. They created all the content. It's really fun. They completely take over for the month of February. And it just, it's reach is is incredible. This is the second year that we've done it, and we've seen great, great results on how many thousands of teens that we can reach through this, and they're, they're getting that information from each other. They're not getting it from, you know, 
me over here, you know, middle-aged woman. They're getting it from their peers, mm. and it just has a different energy to it. Wow. That, that is awesome. And Rhonda, I just want to thank you so much for coming on. I thank you, um, thank you. for the Choose Courage Foundation. It is so needed. I mean, I know that you know that, and it is so important for people to know that yeah. um, there is no shame. I know that there's a time in the midst of it that you feel that way. I mean, I know that I felt that way. Um, and here I am now just announcing it to the world because I want people to know that it is okay to reach out for help. It is okay to, to seek counsel. It is okay to make a phone call, um, to tell somebody, um, that, that you need help. And, and so I thank you so much for coming on, um, today and sharing. Um, don't forget to join us at No Judgment here. We'll be back with both Chris and Faith on From Burleson to Venus and Grandview to Godley, this is the voice of Johnson County, Joko Community Radio.